0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold your reward is great in heaven for so their fathers did to the prophets but woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation woe to you who are full now for you shall be hungry woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep woe to you when all people speak well of you for so their fathers did to the false prophets this is the word of the lord
1: Let's pray, our infinite and great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray to you now that you would uh, lift our eyes to the heavens, lift our eyes to the resurrected and risen King Jesus, that we might see him, that we might know him, that we might become more and more like him as we gather as your people under your word, and we pray for these things in his name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is a torch night, so if you are a fourth through a sixth grader, I want to head out with Cedric and talk about these beatitudes, this Beginning of this sermon from Jesus. You guys can head out, have a great conversation and time together. Uh, Hey there, everyone. It's good to see you all this evening. I hope you had a great week. I was really thankful to get up to the mountains for two days this week. Uh, in the snow to write a chapter for my dissertation that I'm working on. If you don't know this, I'm working on a project that is focusing on one very specific church in East London in the late 1600s, thinking how through like the the published pastoral theology of its fairly well-known pastors may have played its way out into the congregational and even social life of its people. That is, what is the connection between the pulpit and the pew? It's a good question to think about. I loved writing this week about the theology of these pastors, trying to put it all together as this like, consistent package of Baptist belief and conviction about because of who God is now that what he is doing in gathering and forming a people in local churches. Such a joy to think about and learn about these things. Uh, Their world was very different than ours, but also very similar to ours in many ways. Well, we've been working through the gospel, according to Luke, over the past few months. And while we might say that all of Luke, maybe actually the whole Bible, is about the connection between pulpit and pew, right? Is about theological beliefs that we hold to be true about God, but then what that means in our everyday lived lives. Theology about who God is that translates to and then transforms the people who know and hear and believe this theology. And chapter six is all of that in hyperdrive. What does what we believe to be true about God mean for how we live our lives uh, in the minute by minute? Luke 6, or Luke 6, 17 through 49 is known as Jesus's sermon on the plain, like a flat place, not like a flying plane. That would be a weird place for Jesus to give a sermon. But it's beginning, or as Luke tells us in verse 17, Jesus begins preaching at a level place. This is Luke's version and recording of what Matthew calls the Sermon on the Mount. There's a whole lot of overlap in Luke 6 and Matthew 5 through 7, even though Matthew obviously includes a lot more if it takes three chapters. So what's this about? Uh, Did Jesus preach this sermon on a mountain or on a flat place, a level place, a plain? Well, first of all, we should say this about the genre of a gospel account, that Matthew and Luke and Mark and John are not always following the same expectations of telling history that we require of modern historians. They aren't just making things up as they go, but they actually are telling theological histories with theological emphases. And while Matthew is emphasizing Jesus as perhaps a new Moses up on a mountain, now giving a new law to his people, Luke is likely emphasizing Jesus as the one who is welcoming all people equally on a level place They don't have to work or be elevated above each other or one another, but they are all called to come to him, to become his disciple. But another thing is that who's to say that Jesus could only have said these things one time? It's more than possible if not likely that Jesus taught the themes of Luke 6 here on a plain or a level place and he repeated many of those same things up on a mountain maybe again and again and again at different times and different places and for different audiences which is one reason why it's probably safe to assume that his disciples would have remembered his his teaching so well and so these gospel writers could have written down these things so well they had just he had just repeated himself a lot, which is fine. Teachers do this all the time. I do this all the time. So we should expect that Jesus probably did as well. But here we are, though, the Sermon on the Plain, a sermon of a level place. We're going to slow down a bit and take the next three Sundays to unpack this sermon. This is one of the greatest teachings in all of human history. Jesus is a great philosopher. What we're going to think through should be understood, understood right alongside with Aristotle and with Plato, with Seneca, with Cicero, with Buddha, with any great philosopher or any great teacher. It's just that these words can, be, can, can become so well known to us, either individually as Christians, as we become more and more familiar with the Bible, or more and more familiar even these themes culturally, that we can be kind of desensitized to the fact that this is one of the, if not the greatest teachings in human history. He is teaching his disciples a philosophy, a way of understanding the world, a way of living in the world. He is teaching what the good life is, which is actually what every human is seeking. Every human is a philosopher. Every human is trying to ask and then answer, what is the good life? How do I get it? That is philosophy. But Jesus is a master philosopher. Jesus has a philosophy for you. He has a philosophy for all of us. And we're going to take three weeks to try to unpack it just a bit. Last week, we saw Jesus take 12 men up onto the mountain. Not 11, not 13, not 37, not any other random number, but 12. He has reformed a new Israel. These are 12 apostles representing 12 tribes of Israel to be his people. And similar to the way that Moses gave in Deuteronomy, he gave blessings and cursings. There's like a path forward for all people to walk on. A fork in the road uh, that Moses gave of obedience or disobedience to the law there is blessing and cursing for those who would live rightly under the law. Here, Jesus is giving blessing and cursing to his new 12 people, to his new 12 tribes, to the people of God who would live rightly under him as king. And so this week, we're going to think just through verses 17 through 26, really just verses 20 through 26, in two halves, both that come as a comfort to some and a warning to others, perhaps come as a comfort to Us and a warning to us individually at the same time and simultaneously. And so we're going to think through this in two halves, thinking through blessings to some and woe or curse to others. So let's just get right into it. Blessings to some. And Luke tells us in verse 17 that Jesus has come down the mountain with them. Who is them? These are his twelve apostles. And he stood with them on a level place, with then a great crowd of his disciples. And a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast to Tyre and Sidon. There are three different categories of people here that Luke describes the 12 apostles, but also then a great crowd of disciples, which is a different kind of people than the 12. The gospel writers will often distinguish. Uh, disciples from the apostles, usually calling the apostles the 12. Jesus had a bigger and wider group of disciples, of learners, of students, of followers, in addition to the 12. So we might say that all of these 12 apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. But then, lastly, there's apostles, and then there's a wider group of disciples, but then there is even a greater multitude of people from way down south in Judea and Jerusalem, and then from other people as far away up in the north to the Mediterranean coast in what is modern-day Lebanon. So Luke is telling us that there is Jew, possibly Gentile, from north and south. People have come from all over to be healed by Jesus, but even then more highlighted by Luke here to learn from Jesus, to hear his authoritative teaching. And so, importantly, in verse 20, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Jesus is not about to give a political speech outlining his four-point plan for some new socioeconomic world order. He is not even declaring blessing on all people who find themselves in difficult circumstances. Instead, he is declaring blessing on those who are already his disciples. He lifts up his eyes to his disciples, those who are learning from him, those who have come to him not just to receive his healing power, but to learn from him, to follow him, to become like him. And so he says of them four things. He says, blessed or blessed are the poor blessed are the hungry, blessed are those who weep, and blessed are those who suffer. This word blessed has a rich and wide use in Greek and Roman philosophers and in philosophy around Jesus at the time, most often used by Aristotle in the centuries just prior to Jesus. Aristotle is often talking about the blessed life, the good life. What does it mean, this word blessing? It is that, the flourishing life. We might say it basically means happy or you, or even better, flourishing are you. Flourishing are you because of God, because of what he is doing to you to make you flourishing when you are this, when you are poor. And this is immediate flashing red lights to us of this upside down kingdom that Jesus has been describing and that Luke has been presenting to us throughout his gospel. This makes no sense. Blessed are you when you are poor. When is it that we say that we're really blessed? When is it that we make posts and say, hashtag blessed? When are we living the blessed life? When do we make that post? When we're usually like taking a picture of our toes with a beach or a pool in front of us. We are making... A hashtag blessed life when we are posting photos of kids or of grandkids. When we have gotten a promotion at work, when we like to make humble brag posts to announce to the world of how good we've got it right now, how awesome our lives are right now. And Jesus says, "No, no to those things." Hashtag blessed when you can't pay the rent. Hashtag blessed, flourishing are you when you're not sure where the money for groceries is going to come this week. What in the world? That doesn't make any sense. Why would Jesus say this? It sure seems like those who have nothing have actually not been blessed by God, but have been abandoned by God. Like David asks over and over and over again in the Psalms, why do the wicked prosper? Why is it that when I look around and see those who have no care for you, O oh God, why are they seemingly the ones that are being blessed by you? Why does it appear that obedience to God actually brings no material benefit in this life? In fact, actually and very often quite the opposite? Why is this kind of life actually a blessed, happy, flourishing life? Because what God wants most for His people is to give them himself. To fill with what is of actual, true, eternal substance. That in this life, God has not necessarily, uh, he doesn't have any interest in materially blessing you. In fact, in what Jesus is, if what Jesus is teaching is true, then material prosperity may not actually be a blessing, but might be a test. Will I when I have every material need met, still trust God and still depend on him for everything. Or with every material need met, and actually with every material need met by what I am convinced more and more is actually as a result of my ingenuity or my discipline or my hard work, will my wealth act now instead Not as confirmation of what I am doing is right, as confirmation of blessing from the Lord, but will it act instead like a slow-acting sleeping potion, making me drowsier and drowsier and drowsier to my dependence on God, even my acknowledgement of God. Jesus' philosophy seems to be, perhaps experientially of himself, certainly observationally of others, that the poor are actually like walking around in this sphere of blessing, in this sphere of the flourishing life because they are aware of their need. They are not self-deluded like the rich in thinking that they can continue to be this all providing source or fountain of the good things that they need in their life. When someone is unsure of where they will sleep tonight, of what they will eat tonight, and yet then still desperately clings to Jesus as his disciple and says, though my flesh and my heart may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When someone has nothing and still says that in their heart of hearts, that is the place of blessing. That is a flourishing life. Blessed are the poor. Why? For yours is the kingdom of heaven presently. Not some future reality, but presently. This is not a philosophy that says, just suffer now in the present, and then God will make up for it in material blessing in, future, in the future. That the more suffering you experience now, the more you'll get into eternity. That's not what he's saying. But that when you cling to him in desperate faith, yours is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is, of heaven is yours when you need it, when you need him. Then you are getting God, and that is a blessed life. Now, I don't know what your finances are like right now. I know what they are for many of you. Some of you have no financial worry right now, no financial anxiety. Others of you are in tight spots because of perhaps past decisions, past habits that you are now thinking through and coming out of. Still others of you are in even tighter spots because of literally nothing that you did wrong. And perhaps even more than that, because of great evil done to you. Jesus is saying to any and all of us that he gives you himself. He gives you a place of eternal presence with God in peace now as a token or a down payment of possession later. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is yours now, presently. Not fully and to uh, be experienced in its fullness right now, but it is yours as a token, as a down payment. You might think, yeah, that's great, but a rent check sure would be nice. And that's true. And often, for God's people, He gives us each other to actually care for one another's material needs. In Christian fellowship, oftentimes, folks outside of the church want all of the benefits of Christian fellowship. Want the money and the care and the meeting of of, of financial needs without any of the fellowship just want the needs met without any of the mutual care and life together. But even more than that, even if material needs are not not met, which there have been many, many, many countless Christians throughout the millennia who have lived and died without their material needs met, and this beatitude, this blessing is still true. Now, not all those who Jesus' words here, not all those who are poor will receive this blessing because not all of the poor are clinging to him, are being filled by him. And in the same way, not all those who, as we'll see in verse 24, where Jesus says, woe to you or cursed are you who are rich, not all of the rich will actually receive that cursing just in the Gospels alone. Among others, there are Zacchaeus, there is Joseph of Arimathea, there is Nicodemus who are presented as model disciples who cling to Jesus and they are all very rich. But Matthew perhaps clarifies Jesus's meaning and what Luke assumes here, I think, by saying in the beatitude that Matthew presents in the Sermon on the Mount, that blessed are the poor in spirit. There is a poverty of spirit that is a humble spirit, a needy spirit, a place of remaining dependent in all of life on the good provision of God. That if one must pray for God to provide dinner tonight, then that person is often more likely to pray for God to provide thankfulness for that dinner tonight, to provide contentment, to provide joy in life, to provide even more desire to ongoingly kill sin in life. And that is a blessed life. That is a flourishing life that recognizes all of life as the creature rather than the creator. This might be one of the great temptations of the American experience today, to think of ourselves as a creator, to think of ourselves as someone who has manipulative control over all reality rather than acknowledging in humility that I am a creature. I am a receiver rather than a producer. I am a steward rather than an owner. But Jesus goes on now with two more blessings that are often often the consequences or results of poverty, of being poor, of hunger and sadness. He says in verse 21, "'Blessed are you who are hungry now, "'for you shall be satisfied.'" Again, Jesus points out a place of present insecurity. Those who hunger now. And says that, yes, this is a terrible place to be, but security should actually not be measured by present circumstances. Again, as unbelievably upside down as that seems. And I don't say unbelievably like, that's crazy, I know, right? It's crazy that he's talking like this. But I mean like in the literal way that we should say unbelievable. It is sometimes not believable or very difficult to believe when the circumstances around you are so bad that god is saying now hang on this is a blessed life that is difficult to believe but what jesus is saying if we trust and submit ourselves to the words and the philosophy of jesus this is actual reality a right side up reality Blessed are you who are hungry now. But why would it be a potential blessing to be hungry now? And I say potential blessing. Often those who are poor or who are hungry can observe their circumstances and then curse God in anger for it. So again, this is for Jesus' disciples who are recognizing their circumstances and coming to Him and clinging in desperate faith. But why might it be a blessing to be hungry now? Because he says, for you shall be satisfied. This was a wonderful benefit that many of us experienced in fasting last Thursday. That in Luke 14 and in Luke 16, Jesus is going to talk about ultimate feasts of satisfaction. In Isaiah 25, Isaiah looks forward to a day where God will dwell with his people and join them in a feast, an amazing feast of incredible food and of well-aged wine and there at that feast, that future feast of Isaiah 25, God will swallow up death forever. But why is it in Isaiah 25, will the people be satisfied? Is it because the food and the wine is so good? Is it that all of the sadness is gone? That certainly helps, but they will be satisfied because God's people get God. Finally, fully and unhindered by our own sin and our own false worship. And so, like I quoted last week, we fast, we invite hunger into our bellies and into our lives so that we actually don't ruin our appetite for the future feast. Which, by the way, I think fasting from other things like social media, like alcohol, like chocolate or something, all of these things that we actually don't need All of these things can be, these kinds of fasts can be helpful for cultivating self-control and for discipline, but those kind of fasts I think are actually categorically different from fasts from food, like our basest necessity that we have to have to survive. Hunger can be a blessing because it heightens our awareness and our sense of lack in wider areas of our lives than just our basest appetite to survive. A hungry stomach can absolutely translate into then a more hungry spirit. Fill me, fill me, oh God. I am so hungry right now on the things that I absolutely need. I need you to fill me in the same way spiritually. I want you more and more. I want to feed and feast on you. Or again, as Matthew clarifies, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for what? for righteousness. Blessed are you when you are just, you have a growling stomach for the things of God. It seems not to make sense, again, almost unbelievable, but that God will often use what we would never ask for, for poverty, for hunger, and then swing those circumstances right back around for our good, for our joy. I know, easy for me to say, But this is why so many of the Psalms and the prophets have been steadying anchors for poor, for hungry Christians for millennia, who nevertheless, even in those times of doubt, those times of lack, likely lived more contented and joy-filled lives than we do today. But not just hunger, but actual emotional pain as well. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Jesus does not say... Blessed are you who become my disciples, for I will end your suffering. Blessed are you, blessed flourishing life will you have, because if you come to me, I will end all of your pain, all of your loss, all of your grief, all of your sadness in the life. He never says it. Instead, he says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Future tense. He is following in the long line of biblical writers who say things like weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. That he will swallow up death forever, but not yet. Or later like Paul, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, yes, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Really, really difficult circumstances. But God has not abandoned us. No matter the time, no matter the age, no matter the wealth, no matter the status, no matter the suffering, God will dwell with his people. When through the deep waters he calls us to go, he will not, he will not cause the waters to overflow, to overwhelm. He will be with his people. God will dwell with his people and then one day eventually wipe individual tears from individual eyes, from people of individual names and circumstances and losses, swallowing up death and injustice forever, finally now in uninterrupted joy. And speaking of injustice, Jesus gives one more beatitude, one more blessing. Verse 22, he says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. This last one, ties up the ribbon, that all of this has actually not been about socioeconomics, but about discipleship to Jesus. Blessed are you, flourishing are you, when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, or we might paraphrase as, uh, of spurning you as like a, a conclusion, uh, big umbrella category of the whole thing, of when they totally reject you. Blessed are you, flourishing life, when people reject you. Why? On account of me. On account of the Son of Man. I think we all know of people who are just trolls, who think of themselves, who are just out there, you know, spitting the truth on God's behalf. Just telling the world what they need to hear, whether they want to hear it or not. And then they seem to just really, really enjoy the negative reaction because it affirms what they are saying is good. And is right and is true. I love it when people hate me, when they re- revile me, when they reject me, when I'm out spitting God's truth because, well, we should expect it. God's people, God's prophets are always rejected, so I'm just going to go out there and just tell people what they don't want to hear, and when they reject me, hashtag blessed, flourishing life. But there is a big difference for being rejected on account of the Son of Man and being rejected because you're just a jerk. That said, Well, if you've been with us for any amount of time, certainly over the past three years, I think you'll know that I am not necessarily overly alarmist. Uh, Many of you have thought me to be even too naive in the way that I'm understanding perhaps political or cultural shifts around us. And yet, having said that, that I'm not overly alarmist, I am fairly confident that I, that Kyle, that Raybo, that we will pastor one of you. We will pastor two of you. We will perhaps pastor many of you through job loss. This is an entire sermon for another day, but I think that many of us might have convictions about what is good and is right and is true, but holding those convictions won't surely mean that I'll lose my job, right? Surely not. I can just go along with whatever I need to go along with so that I can still live comfortably, right? Now, we, we would rightly be concerned if Mr. M or the bees who are about to go out, or if Miss P who just gave us a report about life in North Africa, we would rightly be concerned if we heard them say the same thing about living in perhaps a Muslim culture. Surely I can still go along with whatever I need to go along with, right? I won't be a jerk about it, but I can, because the culture demands it, I can still participate in whatever mul- Muslim, cultural, or religious practices that I need to participate in so that I can still live comfortably and still have a nice house and a nice car. We would be thinking rightly in confronting them about these kinds of ways that they're compromising, of, of syncretism, of taking like one culture and one culture and blending them to make something completely and altogether new that is both not the way of Jesus or the way of the world but it's like the, the mushy middle of nothing. I think we would rightly confront them, but here, surely not, surely not. Things are different for us in this culture. Things are different now in a new an enlightened generation. Sleeping potion, sleeping potion, sleeping potion, making us drowsier and drowsier and drowsier. Now, again, we shouldn't go out and look for ways to try to lose our jobs, to invite persecution, so that we can perhaps become some sort of like online martyr or something. But I'm telling you, it's coming. It's coming. So let us help you think through whether something is actually worth standing up for, well, worth refusing to participate in the workplace, worth standing with Jesus on. I know easy for me to say, I don't think, I think it's more likely that you all are going to lose your jobs than I will. And yet, I do think since this is coming, we shouldn't just assume that we should do whatever it takes to lay low and stay comfortable, but to be disciples of Jesus and to follow him wherever he is asking us to follow him. In fact, if or when suffering does come on account of the Son of Man, Jesus then gives his only command in this entire section. Did you hear it? What's the only command that he gives? Verse 23, rejoice in that day. When suffering comes, rejoice in in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice. Paul, James, Peter, all of these later New Testament writers will all pick up on this theme. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds, because we know that the testing of our faith develops, what does he say? Develops what? What? perseverance. We're, he's saying, it might not be possible to follow Jesus unto the end without this kind of testing of your faith that strengthens it. Or Paul in Romans 5, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering does something. It produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces, Paul says, hope. Hope in the future, in the the eternal, not just in a comfortable life now that never invites any kind of suffering. We know this to be true of our physical bodies. If all we do throughout the week is what is comfortable, if all we do is just watch TV, play video games, scroll social media all day, it feels good, but it lulls the body and it even lulls the mind into greater unhealth. It is when we are pushed, when we are stretched, even physically, beyond what we think our bodies are capable of, that we actually get stronger, that we get healthier. So again, we don't necessarily go looking for it, but Jesus says to rejoice. He commands us to have joy, rejoice. If you notice, we sang a lot of songs tonight about suffering, about loss. But the very first song we sang was joyful, joyful. We adore you. In the midst of all of this, we are to be a people of joy, which is supernatural. It is not natural to have joy in the midst of suffering, but with Jesus, it's not only possible, but it is good. We grow more spiritually healthy in the here and now through suffering, but He, Jesus, says that God will actually reward this kind of faithfulness as well. Now, I think as Protestants, we can be really allergic to this idea of future reward. We want to pursue faithfulness. We want to pursue obedience to the Lord for some as uh, with a future reward as our present motivation. We get really unsure and nervous about that, but we just can't ignore that it is all over the Bible. Future Uh, reward for faithfulness is actually, can be a very, very helpful motivation and motivator for present faithfulness. Jesus is saying that we can, on the one hand, look for for commendation, security, comfort in the present, which might require a lack of faithfulness to the Lord to keep that in the present, or knowing that these things don't actually matter— we can long for a future commendation, a future security, which is eternal, which is lasting, which is substantial, substance. And all of this is now the reverse theme of these woes or curses. I have intentionally given the bulk of our attention to the first half of this section, because the curses, if you've noticed, or if you were hearing or you're looking at now, they're just the flipped upside down version of the blessings that he's given on the, on the top end. Everything is upside down here. So we've seen blessing to some. Now let's consider woe to others. Thinking up on what we just were thinking about, he says in verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. You can have this now or you can have it later. You have the rich, he is saying, already in the here and now received your consolation, your comfort. Those who depend on their wealth and comfort and again, compared to nearly every single generation and every single culture and society in human history, all of us are the wealthiest and most comfortable people who have ever lived. The people that I'm studying in the late 1600s, we would absolutely consider most third world countries, most third world cultures today in the present to be better off than what they were experiencing in London. I know that we're all like, oh, Sure, oh chap, and everything is also prim and proper and awesome in London. It was terrible, awful. Everyone that I'm studying in this church book of these people have all buried spouses, have buried multiple children. No electricity, no running water. Sickness—if you get a paper cut that gets infected, you might die. People are dying all over the place, and yet they're holding on fast to a joy and security and comfort in who God is to them. So, again, for all of us who are now in a very, very healthy and very, very wealthy place and time in human history, maybe not those who depend on their wealth and comfort, but those of us who, because of our wealth and comfort, do not depend on or acknowledge our need for God, those kinds of people, Jesus is saying, You have received your consolation. You have received your comfort. And then when all people approach the Lord into eternity, the rich and the comfortable will walk up with a big bag of comfort, a huge bag of comfort, and they will look inside and find it to be completely empty. There was nothing there. There is nothing there now for eternity. It will do you no good. The awesome house, the awesome vacations, all good things that can be good and experienced as good gifts from the Lord, but make terrible, terrible, unsubstantial, uneternal gods. And likewise, he says, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Those who have been satisfied in all the wrong things, who have been directed by their appetites, Their lives just move from one quenching and gratifying of those appetites who, again, because of their wealth, never or rarely have to consider that every good and perfect gift comes from above, comes from God. Everything that we experience that is good is only and merely a gift that I can convince myself because I lack very little, because I lack anything, I also can convince myself that I also lack very little spiritually as well. But I have no need for the overwhelming grace and kindness of the Lord. Because, well, I'm a, I'm a pretty good guy. I try my best to be a good person, to serve the poor, to do what is good and right. Jesus says this person is full now because of his effort, because of just doing things apart from the Lord to be filled by the Lord, but even perhaps filling himself with good deeds. That person will be hungry will lack for eternity because he or she was never filled with the goodness of God, was never filled with the righteousness of Christ, was never filled by the sanctifying, um, making holy presence of the Holy Spirit. Bring your bags of full bank accounts and full stomachs, and you will be sent away empty. In the same way, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now, it's not sinful or wrong to laugh. If you know me at all, you'll know that I don't think that's true. We should be a people of joy and of laughing. But what Jesus is condemning is those who move from one meaningless or vapid moment to the next. Or even worse, like those who in Psalm 2 laugh at, scoff at the king and his kingdom. Those who scoff seemingly from a place of moral authority and power. Jesus says, one day we'll mourn. The powerful will be brought to nothing, gone, forgotten, brought to eternal judgment. We used Ecclesiastes as our confession of sin this evening, and Ecclesiastes has so much to say about moving from the meaningless, to the meaningless, to the meaningless, and to the meaningless, endlessly scrolling through our lives. What is it that will last And if we are creatures and not the creator, then it becomes incumbent upon us to learn in humility to more and more agree with what God has said and to not dismissively mock what he wants. That takes humility, though. That takes a place of recognizing that I need to be filled. And so lastly, Jesus says in verse 26, woe to you, cursed are you, when all people speak well of you for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is similar to what Jesus says in Matthew six about those who bring attention to themselves when they give away their money or when they do outwardly religious things like fasting or praying. Just to bring attention to themselves in those things, Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. It was the praise of other people that they were after and they got it and it's an empty bag. There's nothing in there. They got what they wanted, And there's nothing to it when all you want is for people to speak well of you to be popular to have a good reputation in the world's eyes then you are actually inviting curse from God upon yourself the false prophets who called what was evil to be good and they called what was good to be evil they had a good reputation they were very popular with the people because people like to hear what they want to hear But it is not what God wants them to hear, that our God is a God of welcoming grace, of welcoming love, of welcoming acceptance. We have seen that in Jesus throughout Luke. Look at the kinds of people who are drawn to Jesus and he is inviting all people to become his disciple here at a level place. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. You do not have to come with higher or lower social standing. Just come as you are to come uh, with, to be with him. The place where Jesus has died for the proud, where he has died for ungrateful sinners like you and me. But he is a God of grace and acceptance that is predicated upon repentance. On coming to the cross to say, no more of me. No more of the old self. I want you. I want your life. Repentance. Repentance for us all, not just whoever is out there. Whoever, we might read a passage like this and we say, oh my goodness, thank you. Thank you, Lord, like I am not like, that I am not like other sinful men out there. I wish the world would just hear this and respond. They need to understand reality better. They need to turn their lives around. This passage is a warning to all of us to come to Jesus tonight for the very first time, tonight for the 10,000th time, and say to him, I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour, every minute, every second, I need you. To come to him and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I'm not filled by you. I want to be, but I'm not, have mercy on me. And I tell you, it is that man who goes away justified. That man who goes away made right, who is comfortably secure in God's good presence for eternity, who has a flourishing life, who has a blessed life. The one that says, have mercy on me, fill me. I'm not who I want to be, but I'm not who I will be because you are with me, you are filling me. If you're unclear on what any of that means, Initially tonight, as a 20, 30, 40 year disciple of Jesus, we love to meet with you, talk with you through these things, walk with you through these things. Your circumstances do not reveal God's blessing to you. Your circumstances do not dictate whether you can have joy, whether you can trust him, whether you can walk in faithfulness. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls belong to him. Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? Nothing. What will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. This is our hope. There we will rise to meet the Lord, then sin and death will be destroyed, and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we are hungry people, We are empty people. We pray that you would remind us of our hunger, that you would reveal to us and uh, create in us a greater hunger for you, a greater longing for you. Fill us. You are such a good God to fill your people, to fill us with joy, to fill us with contentment, to fill us with hope, to fill us with life, to fill us with faith. And so we come to you, your needy needy people, begging you to pour out your love, holding on to you until you bless us. Not with a pay raise, not with that thing that we think will finally make us happy, but that you would give us yourself. We, were, we are holding on to you in desperate faith. Bless us, O oh Lord. We know you are faithful to your promises, so give us yourself. Pour out yourself on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.